News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm okay with spiders. I'm kind of iffy with snakes, but I'll manage. But if there's one phobia I really have, it is a fear of small spaces. I am very claustrophobic. So when I heard about this next story... Oh, it sent shivers up my spine, but I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm going to get our guest to do that. Dr. Bradley Elliott is with us now, a senior lecturer in physiology at the University of Westminster. Dr. Elliott, thank you for joining us. Hi, Simi. Thank you so much for having me. Well, tell me about your research that you're going to be doing. What is this experiment that you are about to undertake? Uh, So there's there's a guy who, unlike yourself or me, let's be very clear, by the name of Dr. Joseph and what he's decided to do is spend 100 days underwater in quite a small space, in a small underwater habitat, uh, to study the effects that that's going to have upon him on things like his immune system, his body function, and just how people work and whether or not we can live underwater for extended periods of time. Okay, so he's going to live, what, how many feet below the surface is this? So it's 10 meters, so about 30 feet. 30 feet, and how long is he staying down there for? A hundred days. Oh boy. He's about 30 days in at the moment. And so he's got, he's about a third of the way through. Okay. And how big is the space that he's, I have so many questions. How big is the space that he has there? It, uh, tell me about it. It's a fascinating, isn't it? It's so interesting. It's, it's not as small as a, I, you'd initially think. I like to compare it to a small caravan. Uh, it technically has two rooms. So uh, it's got a bit of space. You can stand up freely. It has windows. You can see outside. There's a bit of light. Yeah, but it's a very, very small apartment, like a small hotel room. Basically. Right, but you're you're underwater, so you can't just step outside to get some fresh air or look out a window to see the sky or anything like that. Exactly right. Um, so he can go out and dive freely. So he's an accomplished diver, a former Navy SEAL. He's quite comfortable down there. Um, the windows in the habitat get a little bit of light from the surface. It's about 50% of what you're used to. So you oh get boy. a little bit of daylight cycles, but he can't go for a walk. or Exercise, for example, will be a bit of a struggle for him. Oh, boy. Okay, so now your research is in, in, um, in uh, translational physiology. What does that mean? Like, what are you going to be studying about what this gentleman is doing down there? Uh, so I guess two points of clarification there. One is I'm not involved in this experiment. I've been brought in as a... Uh, external who knows a bit about this stuff and knows a bit about extreme physiology. Um, but what my work does overlaps with this big time. And I like to study extremes, you know, what ridiculous things can humans do. And professionally speaking, I'm sure he wouldn't mind. This is amazing and a bit ridiculous. It's pushing us to the limits and seeing how we survive. Wow. Um, what do you look so for? Particular, like what, yeah, tell me, what is it? Absolutely. So in situations like this, it's a really unusual stimulus. It's not, we evolved at sea level, you know, uh, daylight cycles, normal sun exposure, normal air pressure. So everything about this is just a little bit odd. It's so extreme, it's actually used as a parallel for space flight in some ways. Uh, one of the big questions is his immune system, will it be able to cope? Because he's not getting normal sun exposure, so he's not getting normal amounts of vitamin, vitamin D, um, and that can really affect your immunity in ways that's actually really important for uh, for your listeners and same in, in mine in London here, where we have a lot less sun in the winter. So we can look at it from that point of view and study how his immune system is going to function. 
and, uh, and there's a really interesting open question about what living at that high pressure because he's underwater so his what we call a hyperbaric environment or a high pressure environment and honestly that we don't know we're not really sure what's going to happen after 100 days it'll be an interesting case study of one this is what i was curious about because there's so much pressure at that level what does that do to your body like what is it just that I would, I'm just thinking about the headaches, too, that you would get. So it's so different from being in space, isn't it? Yeah, ex- it is in that regard. Um, so it's about two atmospheres. So it's about double the pressure that we're experiencing at the moment at sea level. Um, it's not enough to cause uh, some of the serious side effects or the dangers from diving. That normally occurs after about 30 meters or, uh, do the maths very quickly, what, 90 to 100 feet. Um, but it does change things just a little bit. One of the things that people report that's really interesting is often people who go down to these habitats and stay for a couple of days at a time is they feel really good the entire time. And it's not really clear whether or not that's because it's a really awesome, amazing, mind-blowing experience to live underwater, or it's a really minor version of what's called nitrogen narcosis, which is where um, divers who aren't who dive too deeply too quickly actually get a slightly drunk from the effects of it or a drunk-like symptom. And so he could just be, you know, really happy for 100 days. And so that could be awesome. Wow. Has something like this been done before? It has. So this he's attempting to break the current world record, um, which is 74 days, which was done by uh, two scientists. And I really can't remember the name of them because one was actually Canadian. And I'm going to go back and find out for you afterwards if I can. <laughs> Um, please. I just I guess I'm just curious really about where we've where we've come from for this. Like it seems like this is a really interesting experiment, but we have the fact that we haven't done it to this extent before feels to me like maybe this is a bit neglected this area of research. Yeah, so the, there's been a few experiments done in a, a NASA facility called Nemo, which is very similar to the one he's staying in with two or three or four people up to six at a time. And those were more uh, psychological experiments. So how does a group of people cope being cooped up in an incredibly alien environment for weeks at a time? And that, in that regard, is really, really similar to spaceflight, being in too small a box with five or six other people. And so we've got a bit of data physiologically from that. And we know things about, like his immune system will probably be lesser over the time. He won't be able to do as much exercise as he might be used to. And so we have to try and think about mitigating all those side effects. But over 100 days, well, that's just, this is exploratory science. Now we see what happens. Wow. I'm so interested to find out how this goes. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us about it this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Sammy. It's been a real pleasure chatting. That's Dr. Bradley Elliott, Senior Lecturer in Physiology at the University of Westminster, talking about this research that is being done when you've got someone, Joe Duturi, who's a former U.S. Navy diver, an expert in biomedical engineering, who is going to live uh, in a 55-square-meter underwater habitat 30 feet below the surface of the water. He's down in the Florida Keys and staying there for 100 days. If he stays there the whole time, he's going to break a record for the most time spent in an underwater ocean habitat. Just think about that for a second, though. I, don't, I couldn't do it. I'll tell you right now, I don't care how big that thing is down there. I don't think I could do it. How about you? Simi at cknw.com. So many questions about that. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Hey, don't forget, coming up this morning, we have a chance for you to win a four-pack of tickets to see the Vancouver Whitecaps in action tonight. This is a CONCACAF Champions League game. It is huge. We're going to find out just how big it is now with the help of Asa Rahman, our sports reporter for the Vancouver Whitecaps, who joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, it's a huge game. I'm so excited to be calling it on AM730 tonight. So really excited to watch this team play, especially with the way they've been playing lately. So yeah, let's get into it. Yeah, let's talk about that because they're, the difference between the CONCACAF Champions League games and the MLS League play has been stark for the Whitecaps this season. They've been playing great, Knockwood, in these Champions League games. <laughs> yeah, they have. And that's something Vanny Chartini talked about last season. Not that they were in the CONCACAF Champions League, but they had the uh, Canadian Championship matches, uh, going after the Voyagers Cup. They did very well. That's why they're in this competition. He feels that they are a bit of a tournament team. They like to get up for these occasions. We saw it last year uh, in the Canadian Championship, winning the final uh, over at Toronto FC, and uh, they've carried that into this season. They've come up uh, big in those two games against Real España in Honduras and then at BC Place as well, a big 5-0 win over Real Espana at BC Place, and they're hoping they can have a repeat performance tonight against LAFC. Okay, and can, maybe you could explain to people, like, what is this Champions League? Like, how does sure. this work? Yeah, so you have the best teams from uh, the other leagues around, CONCACAF, um, and for MLS, they get a representative, or they get representatives from the States. They also get a representative from Canada, uh, so the Canadian competition is the Canadian Championship. They'll be in that competition again this year. They won it last year, beating teams in the Canadian Premier League, beating teams in MLS, the other Canadian teams. And then, yeah, the winner of that lifts the Voyagers Cup, qualifies for this tournament the following year. That's where they are this year. It's a huge deal. Uh, the first MLS team to win it was last year. Seattle did it. And uh, the Whitecaps are hoping to do it again this year. They're in the quarterfinals, so just a, a few games left. That if they can get past LAFC, then they're in the semis, then the finals. So obviously that would be huge for Vanny Sertini and the Whitecaps. Uh, yeah, so which tells us all what a huge game this is for them tonight. You're going to be there. Where can people get tickets? Uh, you can get them on the interweb, like you do for any major <laughs> sporting event. Yeah, uh, get them online. Uh, still plenty of tickets available and uh, the atmosphere obviously drives this team that's one thing we noticed last year as well it was uh, packed and sold out for that final against the TFC last year made such a difference Vanny Tertini has mentioned as well coach of the Whitecaps that uh, they thrive off that home energy so uh, yeah it would be great to have a, a huge showing there at BC Place tonight yeah it really would be so you're going to be there calling the game then so what have the Whitecaps looked like to you this year do they have it are they they got the energy up for this yeah, they look really good, Simi. Uh, one thing I have noticed uh, this year compared to last is just uh, how much they play with the ball, the way they're able to express themselves, the young talent they have as well. It was a coming-out party on the weekend against Montreal for a couple of their young players, Simon Betcher, only 23-year-olds, Ali Ahmed as well, who burst onto the scene last year, uh, got his uh, first MLS start over the weekend. They both scored. Simon Betcher actually had two goals. Ali Ahmed had a great goal, and it was one of the, the best games I had seen from uh, young talents in Vancouver in a long time. So it was really encouraging to see. And just as a whole, the team keeps the ball. They play, uh, they play with possession, create chances as well. Uh, there have been a few games now that we've had over 20 shots in the game. Sometimes they haven't come up with the goals, but that seems to be coming around for the team now. All right, fingers crossed. Asa, have fun yeah. today. It will do. Thanks so much, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. I know the families of people who serve 
are always worried for their loved ones as they step forward to serve their communities to keep the rest of us safe. Uh, and I can't imagine what those families are going through. Please know that we stand with you as families. We stand with all uh, those who step up to serve and protect us all. Public safety for all of us has become such a big issue, you know, during and after the pandemic, and especially for police officers. You heard there from the Prime Minister. You know, for decades, the stats remained about the same, about two or fewer officers per year killed on the job. But since the fall of 2022, eight. That's a lot. What is going on? Now, there are questions about policing and how we police our communities right across the country. If we change that, if we changed how we police or police or how we trained police, could that help improve our situation? Well, Dr. Michael Andrew Artfeld is a former police officer and associate professor of criminology and literature at Western University and joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. So tell me, you've been looking at the way we train police. Is that right? Uh, significantly, yeah. And in fact, uh, my PhD dissertation examined uh, police murders in specific and, and the relation to training. Okay. And what did you find? Well, uh, what I found 10 years ago and what we're seeing now are demonstrably different. Uh, back then, as you stated, police fatalities in Canada were relatively rare. We looked to the U.S. for most of the scenarios or most of the, the, the fatal incidents that were used uh, to develop scenario-based training in Canada. And now, it actually, it seems to be the inverse. U.S. fatalities among law enforcement officers are down 80%. Over the last two years, and in Canada, we're seeing a, a shift the other way, which is concerning. And what do you think? Would like if we changed training, would that help? And in what way do you think we could change training? Well, the officer safety and use of force training in Canada is actually pretty state of the art and draws from uh, models around the world. What, what the issue is is a lot of the training is centered around what policing model is used and in Canada we've increasingly relied on community-based policing uh, whereas when you look to Europe you see more of uh, intelligence-led policing so a lot of policing that relies on informants and relies on technology versus trying to insert police into the lives of everyday citizens in every possible scenario which obviously inevitably leads to uh, potential confrontations. Okay and so is this is this a problem that is happening Everywhere, do you think, Dr. Arnfield? Or is this a Canadian situation, or is this happening everywhere? Well, I mean, it, it, it's a dangerous profession uh, by nature, but uh, Canada uh, is, is certainly, unfortunately, now sort of an outlier when you see, again, in the U.S., which you stereotypically associate with uh, sort of ambush-style attacks on police and anti-government rhetoric uh, and extremism. And you see fatalities and, and lethal incidents down significantly, and, and as well as in Europe and in Canada, uh, which, again, is still clinging to this community-based model. Uh, this I, I don't want to say it's a trend yet. Six months isn't enough to, to constitute a trend, but certainly a, a wave of violence against police. It, it's highly concerning. Right. You said six months is not a trend. I get that. But something seems to have changed, though, right? Like, I think cities everywhere are noticing that there is just something different going on on the streets. So rethinking the way we, you know, police our communities, do you think it's time we're due for that, essentially? 
Yeah, you sum it up perfectly when you say that every citizen, there's something palpable when you're walking around that it's just it's, it's not the Canada that we were accustomed to. And uh, I mentioned this in a couple of other interviews uh, that, I mean, this is the legacy of some very poor government decision making, whereby years ago they shuttered most inpatient uh substance misuse and mental health facilities, and you have, obviously, uh, reforms made to the bail system. I mean, I I just read that uh, someone had attacked two police officers in Stanley Park on the weekend that was released within hours. So, I mean, this is the reality. Right. But it worked for a time, though, right? Like, I guess all those things were popular ideas at the time, but now we have this perfect storm where they've all seemed to come together to cause what we see happening. Precisely. And, I mean... no one set out to create uh, a more dangerous Canada, or at least we'd like to think that. But yeah, service to these novel ideas uh, was uh, fashionable at the time. And you're right, they've, they've all sort of come to a head simultaneously, whereby uh, it's extraordinarily dangerous to walk in a park or look at uh, the situation in Toronto on the transit system, which right. looks like New York in the 80s. It's okay, so speaking of New York in the 80s then, right? So in response to what was happening there, they changed how they police in the community, didn't they? Significantly. And uh, again, how times change. I mean, this was a, at the time, Rudy Giuliani was, quote unquote, uh, America's mayor. And uh, his his hardline tough on crime tactics, which have since been deemed unconstitutional, there's no question, uh, changed the um the, the, the safety parameters of that city. Now, those methods could not be used today, the stop and frisk tactics and, and other methods, but um, it's time to reevaluate, like I said, looking at evidence-based policing, intelligence-led policing like is done in Northern Ireland and England, and, uh, and, and, and really sort of follow the science. Okay, what does that mean, though? What does intelligence-led policing mean? So evidence-based policing and intelligence-led policing rely on data versus novel liberal ideas about how to uh, deploy officers, uh, how to respond to trends in crime, looking at, uh, again, uh, partnering with uh, private sector and universities. So this is done significantly in Europe, whereby police have recognized that they, they're not necessarily the best authorities on uh, how to deploy their own officers, and they have to respond to what scientists criminologists uh, and, and, and political scientists uh, deemed to be the best use of resources. So, uh, again, we saw this in Toronto where maybe we can redeploy officers on the subway, not as a Band-Aid solution, but develop more of a transit-based policing system like they have in New York, which, again, was developed in the 90s to curb crime versus putting officers in, in elementary schools. You know, what else I've noticed, I was in New York uh, in December, and every time I go there, there's one thing that strikes me about how they police there. It's so visible, right? It is police officers not in their cars, walking on the streets, on the street corners. You don't really see that in a lot of cities, do you? No, you don't. And uh, in Canada, they like to call that, again, community-based policing for a while, being out in the community. But it's it's the numbers, you're right, that matter. It's the visibility that matters. I may give you a quick uh, scenario. Toronto, for instance, I don't have the numbers immediately available for Vancouver, but Toronto Police Service has a jurisdiction over about 5.5 million people and has uh, about uh, 5,000 officers. Uh, Metropolitan London, England, a little bit bigger, uh, about 8 million people. Guess how many officers they have compared to Toronto's, you know, 5,000? I don't know. How many? 35,000. 
So for 2 million more people, you've got seven times the number of officers. So they are ubiquitous. They are visible. Uh, again, this is a global city that faces terror threats, IRA threats historically. That's what caused them to boost their numbers. But when you look at, again, safety on the transit system, when you look at just being able to walk around and not be attacked with a hammer, uh, they, they, they figured out that, yeah, having officers visible is, is uh, that's not community policing. That is, again, just common sense. Okay, so then is there any indication then uh, that they that we are rethinking sort of the way we train officers or how we police our communities? Uh, the only indication of that, and again, this was just uh, national news yesterday, is that uh, police chiefs are now finally sort of uh, closing ranks uh, and developing sort of a lobby group to approach the government about uh, discussions regarding these very issues, including bail reform. And uh, unfortunately, it's taken uh, numerous lives, not only the lives lost, but those collaterally impacted other officers, these officers, families, uh, for there finally to be a call to action on this. Uh, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. By now, you've probably heard that the NDP government announced a housing plan this week. It talked about things like an anti-flipping tax and maybe changing single-family home zoning to allow multiple units on each property. Now, these are areas, well, some of them anyway, that are usually dealt with by municipalities. So how are local governments feeling about this plan? The Union of BC Municipalities is actually hosting a housing summit this week. And in fact, Premier David Eby will be speaking there today. But let's find out uh, what our cities and communities think about this. Councillor Jen Ford is with us now, President of the Union of BC Municipalities. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, housing, of course, is a very hot topic right now. Tell me, what has been the reception to some of these ideas floated by the provincial government this week? You know, this week has been um, a a really interesting energy in the room. There's lots of different sectors in the room, nonprofit, indigenous housing, local governments, provincial members. um, And and really what we're hearing is that um, people are excited to do this work. They've been wanting to do this work. Um, but we have to stop working in isolation from each other. We need to work together and we really need to take that seriously. And we see that the province is taking that seriously, too. OK, but what about the idea of a lot, some of these areas, it seems like, are, are stepping a little bit on the council's toes in municipal governments? Uh that that is certainly the sentiment uh, from some local governments that already allow secondary suites or they allow uh, for for uh, multiple units on single family lots. Um, certainly interested in strong cult- consultation from the province before this legislation rolls out, um, because ultimately every community is different, and and how this blanket policy could be rolled out across the province uh, is certainly of a concern for us. Yeah, I could imagine. Are you hearing, though, like depending on no matter where the municipalities are, is housing just an issue everywhere? Absolutely. There is no community in this province that hasn't been touched by housing affordability, attainability, um, and and really just challenges um, accommodating the number of people that want to live in our communities. And, uh, um, And so the more we can work together on this, the better. What are you seeing in your community? Our community, uh, we've seen a 22% growth since the last census rate. Um, We've had a tremendous challenge in attracting uh, 
temporary workers, long-term workers uh, for a, a tourism economy that absolutely depends on frontline staff and, and affordability is a huge part of that. Right. And you're in Whistler, right? So I can imagine that there must be some huge challenges there. So how would this housing plan, do you think, help Whistler? Uh, That's a good question. um, (laughs) We are uh, addressing, we've built four new buildings of rental, uh, purpose-built rental buildings in the last three years. We've built two new buildings of of condos, but it's definitely not enough. Uh, The, the, and the increase in in the number of jobs in our community that that continue to go unfilled is is really challenging and we've been we've been working really hard at this for for many many years this isn't new for whistler um but it's it's certainly something that uh we hear over and over and over is the number one reason that businesses can't find enough employees uh, which ultimately hurts hurts our economy and it, and it hurts the quality of experience in our community. Right. Councillor Ford, like obviously the housing summit is mean, a great idea, right? To get together and throw some ideas around. But has there been any consensus, do you think, on what needs to be done? Certainly there's um, a resounding interest in, in seeing more funding um, and, and more provincial uh, participation as well as federal participation. We've been waiting for the Housing Accelerator Fund from the, Fed, from the federal government for over a year. And we're anxiously awaiting for that to be uh, rolled out because that's $4 billion uh, to, uh, to help accelerate housing. Okay, like funding for what, though? Like, where is that money going to go? Uh, it'll, it'll go to a number of different aspects of the housing continuum. Um, housing starts, land acquisition, um, y- you name it, we need it. <laughs> okay, but can municipalities do more, though? Because we've often heard that the logjam is often with getting things approved at the municipal level. So how will more money help that? Uh, we need to attract um, building inspectors, planning staff. We're all really trying to access the same skill skilled workers that that bring in those development approvals and and expedite them through municipalities but every municipality is struggling with with um, there are, what we heard from squamish is um, that there are almost 6000 units approved but they're not getting built because developers are waiting to move forward they've they've been approved but they they can't attract the the construction trades and um, and so our concern is how do we get those housing starts that have been approved at the local level into the ground? Right. So you're saying there's, there, okay, the idea of um, needing more people in the planning department, that's interesting then. So you're saying like, really, you get all these applications. How do you, how do you deal with all of them? How do we move through them? That is, that is the question. And every community is able to address that in different ways. Um, in Coquitlam, they've had a huge backlog of approved, again, approved units that are ready to go, um, but those those applications aren't even being picked up because developers are constrained by trades and and the available labor to, to make those housing units a, a reality. So is there an incentive that's needed to say, hey, listen, we approved this. You've got to get going on this. Like, can you put a time lim- limit on that and say your permit's good for one year to get shovels on the ground? Yeah, that's what we're that's what we're hearing from many local governments, big and small cities are saying uh, a revamp of our development finance rules um, wherever we can. Um, if we can. If, sorry, I've lost my train of thought here. Right. Um, so what we're talking about here, though, is the idea of like, what can municipalities do? Like, can you say to a developer, you've got here's your permit. You've got one year to get going on this. 
I think we need a, a, re, um, a revamp of the Local Government Act to allow us to do that. I don't believe we have the tools to do that. That's a part of what this summit is about, is to reevaluate the tools that the local government has, because we truly are on the front line of this, um, and we're limited in what we can do um, to incent those units to to be built uh, quickly. So I know that Premier David Eby is speaking at that housing summit today. What do you hope to hear from him? Uh, we're hoping we're hoping to hear that you know he's he's made his commitments. He's re reevaluated the housing plan. Uh, we heard that earlier this week. We want to hear more detail. We want to hear how this is going to roll out into communities, and we want to hear what kind of supports local governments will have um, that we're able to do this work. And and to really and truly work with the Ministry of Housing uh, to make this to make this work for everyone. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Councillor Jen Ford, a councillor in Whistler, also president of the Union of BC Municipalities, talking about the UBCM housing conference that's been going on this week. Lots of chatter about the discussion there, you know, different levels of government all participating, talking about what is needed. Uh, clearly, yeah, the, the logjam we always hear about it, it is at the municipal level. How do you get that moving? What are the tools that are needed? Uh, Premier David Eby will be speaking there today, and I'm sure you'll be hearing lots about it. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. If someone is in an abusive relationship, how do they leave? How do they get legal help if they need it? How do they even know what their options are? Well, bridging that divide has been one of the recommendations in a report called Creating Safety in BC Courts. And there is something that is being done to address it. So let's find out what that is. Joining us now is Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of BC. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Simi. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, tell tell me about what's happening here, because this sounds like this could go a long ways towards helping people who need it. Yeah, so we are investing $1 million um, to work with RISE Legal Clinic, who works uh, specifically with women and gender diverse people to provide um, legal services um, for people that are low, low income women that are uh, feeling violent. And it's really helping to provide a safety net at a time that you're talking about in the intro where, you know, you're, you're fleeing violence. It's very complicated. Um, the legal system can be daunting. and We want people to get the support they need at that critical time, um, especially since uh, legal outcomes can affect the rest of their life. Okay, and so what will this go towards? What will this money do? Well, RISE Legal Clinic provides um, free legal services uh, to women and gender device people are low-income or fleeing violence who will go directly to providing legal services, and particularly... Um, we're working on a, a creating safety in BC courts and training um, family law advocates and support workers to help um, people through that. So there's a variety of services that it'll go to. Um, particularly, we want, um, I know RISE focuses on complex cases where women need extra help because of the complexity of their cases. So it's just being there at that critical, critical time with legal services. How um, difficult is it to navigate the court process, do you think, right now, if you are someone who's in an abusive relationship? Uh, well, it's a traumatic time, and there's a lot going on for that individual. I used to work um, and volunteer in, in places that provided this type of legal service, and I know that um, there's the safety of the woman and the trauma associated with leaving. It can be daunting, but I also know that there are a lot of people, particularly um, the, the, at Rise Legal Clinic, that can offer the support at that critical time, can tell the woman about uh, what services they need, what legal 
steps they need to take to get to themselves in a better space and cook the, hook them up with supports to get to that other side. And, um, you know, we there's been a rise in unfortunate intimate partner violence during COVID, and we want to be there for these these women um, that need the help at this time. And accessing legal services is so key to that. Okay, so this is one aspect of that, right? This is helping them get some legal advice and some services, helping to write protection orders. But what about the rest of the system? What about helping the rest of the system to understand what people are going through? Yeah, thanks for that question. I think there's there's a bigger plan and bigger work we're doing on our gender-based violence action plan, and it actually includes a lot of ministries. It's um, public safety, um, it's my ministry, it's mental health. Um, supports and what we're doing is coming up with a, a government-wide plan that figures out the interventions that are needed and certainly my part of that as attorney general is the justice system um, we've been piloting some programs um, that are about early resolution in family law so helping the court system um, you know the pre-court system get people the supports and information they need so maybe they don't have to go to court they can resolve it outside and if there's intimate partner violence hooking them up with supports and we have justice centers that we've been investing in across BC to help do that to provide that um, in for legal information that might be needed at certain times and there's I know there's lots more work to do but it's something that um, that we want to address in many ways through our gender-based violence action plan. Okay so you say there's more coming? That's right. There's there's a lot more work underway and we're, we're always looking at ways in the justice and just to provide better access to courts and low barrier access. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time on that. No problem. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your interest. That's Nikki Sharma, the Attorney General of BC, talking about providing some funding to help low-income women, people fleeing abusive relationships, get some legal advice. Now, that seems like a simple thing. It often is incredibly challenging. Who do you ask questions to? Uh, Just talking to a lawyer costs money, as many of us know. So how do you get some just advice? Write a protection order. Do those things that can make such a difference in helping people flee those situations. And hopefully that is what this will do. This is Mornings with Simi. Is this what the healthcare system needs? That is the question. After we heard that an agreement had been reached with the nurses in this province and the provincial government to change the way we staff the situation. So this means that there's going to be a quite, quite a different patient-to-nurse ratio in our province. We want to break it all down, explain it to you, talk about how this is going to work now. Joining us is Jim Gould, the CEO and lead negotiator of the BC Nurses Union. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you, Simi. Can you explain to us what is a nurse-patient ratio? What does that mean? I sure can. So what we're talking about is a minimum nurse-to-patient ratio which means that there will be uh, a minimum number of patients per nurse, depending upon how sick the patient is and how much care they require. So, for instance, if you're dealing with a patient who's very unwell, finds himself in the ICU and they're ventilated, uh, in that kind of a situation, the minimum nurse-to-patient ratio would be one-to-one, meaning you should never, ever have more than one of those patients to one trained professional nurse. And do we know what is that ratio like right now? It's not that. It is definitely not that, which uh, which is a, a very, very uh, serious uh, and concerning issue for the BCNU, for the Nurses Bargaining Association, and for the government. You know, evidence shows to me that with each additional patient, particularly when you're dealing with patients who are really sick, uh, the evidence is clear that that can increase mortality by between 12 and 16% meaning as you pile more nurses on top of more patients on top of nurses 
who are very unwell, more patients are going to die. So how do you decide, though, what the ratio is, is going to be? Like, how do you decide based on the illness? What illnesses? You know, that's a, that's a really great question. Fortunately, there are two jurisdictions in the world that have already done this. And they did it at a time when they were experiencing a very serious nerve shortage, which is what we're in right now. Those jurisdictions are California, uh, and it also happened in Australia. Uh, and, w- and this is years ago, Australia, uh, you know, 20 years ago, and, and California, uh, 13 years ago. So a ton of research has gone into this, a lot of study. And the studies have shown a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, one, one thing that it's shown is that 74% of nurses say that the quality of care increased because of ratios. Uh, there were 31.6% fewer injuries of nurses patient mortality uh, decreased, uh, job satisfaction increased, and overall there was an increase in the quality of patient care, which is fantastic. And a whole bunch of nurses came back. In Australia, 7,000 inactive nurses came back. In California, 60%, there was a 60% increase in nurse registrations, and the list goes on. So it's been studied. Uh, we're modeling this, uh, the province and the NBA, after Australia. Uh, And we think that uh, there's no reason why it wouldn't work here because it works there. Okay, but Jim, it seems to me that we would need an awful lot more nurses to make this work. Where are we going to find those nurses? Well, that's a really good point and a fantastic question. Literally, it's a $700 million question because that's how much money is being invested in ratios by this government in the next three years. So between the current contract uh, that we have out for ratification, uh, so it's a tentative deal, uh, which... uh, represents a significant number of benefits for nurses in this province, which I can't talk about because we're just dealing with a membership now to help them understand it. Uh, Between that contract, uh, which represents meaningful increases, and between putting uh, ratios in place and also combined with a huge and unprecedented recruitment effort, we think nurses will come back to work and we think we're going to find them. Uh, BC is one of the most beautiful places to live in the world. And if we can increase nurses' income, we can put ratios in place, we think they will come. How important, though, was this to the membership? Will this be something critical for them to vote on? So, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, this is, this is actually not something that they have to ratify. Uh, they're ratifying their collective agreement. Uh, this is a deal between the Nurses' Bargaining Association and government. Uh, the two are tied and the two work together synergistically, for sure. Um, but it's critically important. It's something that will result in solving the healthcare crisis, uh, in dealing with workload issues once and for all. And we are excited about this. Okay, what's the timeline like, though, Jim? Like, how soon do you think this could start to have an impact on patient care? Uh, another fantastic question. In negotiations with government, uh, we have been very clear. Government is very clear. We're looking at this in the same way. It has to start immediately, uh, and, it, and it will start immediately. As soon as we ratify this contract and voting starts on the 20th and closes on the 27th, as soon as it's ratified, we're going at this as hard as we can. Uh, we're going to do whatever we can to assist in recruitment, retention, and trying to turn the tides uh, over here in, in terms of uh, nurse staffing and quality of patient care. So do you think anybody would notice then? If you're in a hospital, are you going to notice this? In time, 100%. 100%. The quality of care will increase, and the beauty of nurse-patient ratios is that they're going to be made public. Everybody will know. And so if you're in a hospital, you can look around, count the number of patients in your area, 
and expect to have a minimum nurse-to-patient ratio. So if there aren't the right number of nurses, you'll know that your care is at risk. And that is a beautiful thing for the public. It's a beautiful thing in California. The nurses hold their institutions accountable. Uh, They regularly will pause work and say, hey, wait a second, where's the nurse? Where's the extra nurse? And it works. And, And quality of care increases and it makes everyone safer and happier. It, right. It's a fantastic thing and patients will see a difference. So is there a maximum with this deal? Like is, has there been a maximum ratio that has been set that you cannot exceed? No, no, that's not it. Uh, look, at the end of the day, if, if there are more nurses, that is only better for patients. Uh, what we're doing here is we're saying there has to be an absolute minimum. And so, for instance, that, that very sick patient who's on a ventilator, the minimum is one-to-one. There may be two-to-one if that patient requires, you know, hands-on, aggressive, an aggressive level of care. Right. But, but you cannot go below one nurse. But what about the other way then? Is there, is there a maximum number of patients that one nurse can look after? It's, it's the same deal. Yep, it, it's exactly the same thing. So, so what the minimum nurse-to-patient ratio means is that one nurse will only look after X number of patients. So if it's one-to-one, that means one patient for one nurse. If it's two to one or three to one, it's two patients or three patients to one nurse. Right. I guess that, so the number of patients depends on what, what ward they're on or what they're in for? It depends on what level of care is required. Uh, and so, as I mentioned, in intensive care, uh, it'll be one to one. In other areas of a hospital, uh, in other areas where care uh, is, the care needs are different um, and where patients are, are less acute, uh, it may be two to one, three to one, four to one, in some cases, five to one. Okay, so if this starts as soon as possible, then I guess you, you where, Jim? Like, which which health authority, which hospital? Where do you start with this? So the beauty of what we're doing here is that this applies across all sectors. BC is leading the way in Canada. We're the first, which is also very, very, very exciting. Uh, it's going to apply uh, in every area of healthcare, long-term care, community care, uh, in the hospitals, all over the place. In California and Australia, it does not apply to long-term care and community care, we're doing it here. It will apply right across the province, uh, and we are going to start rolling it out, again, as soon as this contract is ratified. Um, We're going to start, it'll be a phased approach, and the first phase will be looking at acute care, so looking at all of our hospitals. We're not starting in one health authority, we're doing it right across the province. All right, Jim, thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi, I hope you have a great day.